section three of english literature by william j long this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter two continued part two anglo-saxon life we have now read some of our earliest records and have been surprised perhaps that men who are generally described in the histories as savage fighters and freebooters could produce such excellent poetry it is the object of the study of all literature to make us better acquainted with men not simply with their deeds which is the function of history but with the dreams and ideals which underlie all their actions so a reading of this early anglo-saxon poetry not only makes us acquainted but also leads to a profound respect for the men who were our ancestors before we study more of their literature it is well to glance briefly at their life and language the name originally the name anglo-saxon denotes two of the three germanic tribes jutes angles and saxons who in the middle of the fifth century left their homes on the shores of the north sea and the baltic to conquer and colonize distant britain angeln was the home of one tribe and the name still clings to the spot whence some of our forefathers sailed on their momentous voyage the old saxon word angul or ongul means a hook and the english verb angul is used invariably by walton and older writers in the sense of fishing we may still think therefore of the first angles as hookmen possibly because of their fishing more probably because the shore where they lived at the foot of the peninsula of jutland was bent in the shape of a fishhook the name saxon from seax sax a short sword means the swordman and from the name we may judge something of the temper of the hardy fighters who preceded the angles into britain the angles were the most numerous of the conquering tribes and from them the new home was called anglalund by gradual changes this became first Anglond and then england more than five hundred years after the landing of these tribes and while they called themselves englishmen we find the latin writers of the middle ages speaking of the inhabitants of britain as anglisaxones that is saxons of england to distinguish them from the saxons of the continent in the latin charters of king alfred the same name appears but it is never seen or heard in his native speech there he always speaks of his beloved anglilond and of his brave english people in the sixteenth century when the old name of englishmen clung to the new people resulting from the union of saxon and norman the name anglo-saxon was first used in the national sense by the scholar camden in his history of britain and since then it has been in general use among english writers 
in recent years the name has gained a wider significance until it is now used to denote a spirit rather than a nation the brave vigorous enlarging spirit that characterizes the english-speaking races everywhere and that has already put a broad belt of english law and english liberty around the whole world the life if the literature of a people springs directly out of its life then the stern barbarous life of our saxon forefathers would seem at first glance to promise little of good literature outwardly their life was a constant hardship a perpetual struggle against savage nature and savage men behind them were gloomy forests inhabited by wild beasts and still wilder men and peopled in their imagination with dragons and evil shapes in front of them thundering at the very dikes for entrance was the treacherous north sea with its fogs and storms and ice but with that indefinable call of the deep that all men hear who live long beneath its influence here they lived a big blond powerful race and hunted and fought and sailed and drank and feasted when their labor was done almost the first thing we notice about these big fearless childish men is that they love the sea and because they love it they hear and answer its call no delight has he in the world nor in aught save the roll of the billows but always a longing a yearning uneasiness hastens him on to the sea note from idding's version of the seafarer as might be expected this love of the ocean finds expression in all their poetry in beowulf alone there are fifteen names for the sea from the home that is the horizon sea the upmounding to the brim which is the ocean flinging its welter of sand and creamy foam upon the beach at your feet and the figures used to describe or glorify it the swan road the whale path the heaving battle plain are almost as numerous in all their poetry there is a magnificent sense of lordship over the wild sea even in its hour of tempest and fury often it befalls us on the ocean's highways in the boats our boatmen when the storm is roaring leap the billows over on our stallions of the foam note from andreas a free translation the whole poem thrills with the old saxon love of the sea and of ships the inner life a man's life is more than his work his dream is ever greater than his achievement and literature reflects not so much man's deed as the spirit which animates him not the poor thing that he does but rather the splendid thing that he ever hopes to do in no place is this more evident than in the age we are now studying those early sea kings were a marvellous mixture of savagery and sentiment of rough living and of deep feeling of splendid courage and the deep melancholy of men who know their limitations and have faced the unanswered problem of death 
they were not simply fearless freebooters who harried every coast in their war galleys if that were all they would have no more history or literature than the barbary pirates of whom the same thing could be said these strong fathers of ours were men of profound emotions in all their fighting the love of an untarnished glory was uppermost and under the warrior's savage exterior was hidden a great love of home and homely virtues and a reverence for the one woman to whom he would presently return in triumph so when the wolf hunt was over or the desperate fight was won these mighty men would gather in the banquet hall and lay their weapons aside where the open fire would flash upon them and there listen to the songs of scop and gleeman men who could put into adequate words the emotions and aspirations that all men feel but that only a few can ever express music and song where the heroes sat the glee wood rang a song uprose when hrothgar's scop gave the hall good cheer note from beowulf a free translation it is this great and hidden life of the anglo-saxons that finds expression in all their literature briefly it is summed up in five great principles their love of personal freedom their responsiveness to nature their religion their reverence for womanhood and their struggle for glory as a ruling motive in every noble life springs of anglo-saxon poetry in reading anglo-saxon poetry it is well to remember these five principles for they are like the little springs at the head of a great river clear pure springs of poetry and out of them the best of our literature has always flowed thus when we read blast of the tempest it aids our oars rolling of thunder it hurts us not rush of the hurricane bending its neck to speed us whither our wills are bent we realize that these sea rovers had the spirit of kinship with the mighty life of nature and kinship with nature invariably expresses itself in poetry again when we read now hath the man o'ercome his troubles no pleasure does he lack nor steeds nor jewels nor the joys of mead nor any treasure that the earth can give o royal woman if he have but thee note translated from the husband's message written on a piece of bark with wonderful poetic insight the bark itself is represented as telling its story to the wife from the time when the birch tree grew beside the sea until the exiled man found it and stripped the bark and carved on its surface a message to the woman he loved this first of all english love songs deserves to rank with valentine's description of sylvia why man she is mine own and i as rich in having such a jewel as twenty seas if all their sand were pearl the water nectar and the rocks pure gold two gentlemen of verona act two scene four 
we know we are dealing with an essentially noble man not a savage we are face to face with that profound reverence for womanhood which inspires the greater part of all good poetry and we begin to honor as well as understand our ancestors so in the matter of glory or honor it was apparently not the love of fighting but rather the love of honor resulting from fighting well which animated our forefathers in every campaign he was a man deserving of remembrance was the highest thing that could be said of a dead warrior and he is a man deserving of praise was the highest tribute to the living the whole secret of beowulf's mighty life is summed up in the last line ever yearning for his people's praise so every tribe had its scop or poet most important than any warrior who put the deeds of its heroes into the expressive words that constitute literature and every banquet hall had its glee man who sang the scop's poetry in order that the deed and the man might be remembered oriental peoples built monuments to perpetuate the memory of their dead but our ancestors made poems which should live and stir men's souls long after monuments of brick and stone had crumbled away it is to this intense love of glory and the desire to be remembered that we are indebted for anglo-saxon literature our first speech our first recorded speech begins with the songs of widsith and deor which the anglo-saxons may have brought with them when they first conquered britain at first glance these songs in their native dress look strange as a foreign tongue but when we examine them carefully we find many words that have been familiar since childhood we have seen this in beowulf but in prose the resemblance of this old speech to our own is even more striking here for instance is a fragment of the simple story of the conquest of britain by our anglo-saxon ancestors herr hengist and ask his suno gefutton with britas on their store there is gechweden kretschkanford and there of slogan fairer thusenda were and tha britas the folleton chentlond and mid muclum edge flugon to lundenburic at this time hengist and ask his son fought against the britons at a place which is called crayford and there slew four thousand men and then the britons forsook kentland and with much fear fled to london town note from the anglo-saxon chronicle record of the year four fifty seven the reader who utters these words aloud a few times will speedily recognize his own tongue not simply in the words but also in the whole structure of the sentences from such records we see that our speech is teutonic in its origin and when we examine any teutonic language we learn that it is only a branch of the great aryan or indo-european family of languages in life and language therefore we are related first to the teutonic races and through them to all the nations of this indo-european family which starting with enormous vigor from their original home probably in central europe 
note according to sweet the original home of the aryans is placed in central or northern europe rather than in asia as was once assumed see the history of language page one o three spread southward and westward driving out the native tribes and slowly developing the mighty civilizations of india persia greece rome and the wilder but more vigorous life of the celts and teutons in all these languages sanskrit iranian greek latin celtic teutonic we recognize the same root words for father and mother for god and man for the common needs and the common relations of life and since words are windows through which we see the soul of this old people we find certain ideals of love home faith heroism liberty which seem to have been the very life of our forefathers and which were inherited by them from their old heroic and conquering ancestors it was on the borders of the north sea that our fathers halted for unnumbered centuries on their westward journey and slowly developed the national life and language which we now call anglo-saxon dual character of our language it is this old vigorous anglo-saxon language which forms the basis of our modern english if we read a paragraph from any good english book and then analyze it as we would a flower to see what it contains we find two distinct classes of words the first class containing simple words expressing the common things of life makes up the strong framework of our language these words are like the stem and bare branches of a mighty oak and if we look them up in the dictionary we find that almost invariably they come to us from our anglo-saxon ancestors the second and larger class of words is made up of those that give grace variety ornament to our speech they are like the leaves and blossoms of the same tree and when we examine their history we find that they come to us from the celts romans normans and other peoples with whom we have been in contact in the long years of our development the most prominent characteristic of our present language therefore is its dual character its best qualities strength simplicity directness come from anglo-saxon sources its enormous added wealth of expression its comprehensiveness its plastic adaptability to new conditions and ideas are largely the result of additions from other languages and especially of its gradual absorption of the french language after the norman conquest it is this dual character this combination of native and foreign of innate and exotic elements which accounts for the wealth of our english language and literature to see it in concrete form we should read in succession beowulf and paradise lost the two great epics which show the root and the flower of our literary development End of section three.